0: Okay, so I wanted to take a little time to perhaps reflect on or respond to whatever may be on your mind, within reason. Um, Does anybody have anything they'd like to raise? Yes, Masawa. Nowadays,
1: Yeah, yeah. Mindfulness space,
0: uh, cognitive yeah. and so on. But do you think there is a difference, any difference
1: between this kind of mindfulness we are talking about and sadhik? Okay. Because sadhik is part of a path which includes uh, ethics. Yeah. I mean, uh, also it's neither as 100% of mindfulness, but...
0: 0% of Sorry, what was the last sniper. bit? oh yeah, the sniper yeah, yeah sniper. yeah 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 okay so so the question was around this um you know, are there distinctions in the mindfulness that is employed in more secular or clinical or therapeutic settings? And the quality of mindfulness that the Buddha speaks about more traditionally in the suttas. It's, it's not an, because traditionally in the suttas, of course, mindfulness has a very extended family. Um, mindfulness is never a standalone quality and part of the extended family of mindfulness in traditional teachings is the quality of ethics, um, which we mustn't assume does not happen also in more contemporary applications. You know, I mean, myself, I just facilitated a, a day long at a conference, you know, for 700 people upon, about international integrity in in mindfulness teaching, so we mustn't assume that it's not a concern. I mean, of course, the Buddha always talks about skillful or samasati, wise mindfulness. And, you know, I think the whole question of what mindfulness is, to understand that, I think it's an ongoing journey for most of us. And I don't think it's completed, actually, in traditional settings. Um, Sati is a very powerful word you know i mean it is the beginning of pretty much every buddhist list in terms of development it begins always with sati you know this and you know mindfulness in, in a way is such an inadequate translation of what sati is you know and you think well why is mindfulness why is sati so important um and it's important because it's, it's an embarkation point you know It's a quality of knowing, you know being able to be aware of what is actually happening and our relationship to what is happening. Now this is true in every application of mindfulness, whether it's in secular settings or more traditional settings. I think there's other aspects of mindfulness across the board that are perhaps not appreciated as much as they would be helpful to appreciate. I mean, if I think of the sort of four core dimensions of what mindfulness is or what sati is, you know, the first of those is the simple knowing, knowing what's going on, you know, knowing this is thinking, knowing the body, knowing feeling, knowing mind states, knowing what is going on, which actually sounds really simple, but actually is a huge leap for most people. You know, it's very easy to wander through life, just not being quite sure of what's going on. But that knowing is also, of course, a first step in non-identification. You know, to be able to begin to have a dialogue with what is actually happening, rather than being defined by it. I mean, another dimension of sati, of course, is in terms of um, protective awareness, which. You know, it's it's often overlooked how much sati is here to protect the mind. You know, and the metaphor that's used in the suttas is that the gatekeeper at the door of a city, you know, actually has a discerning quality of what is helpful and what is unhelpful. You know, so the gatekeeper at the the doors of a city, you know, sees this range of, of visitors arriving and actually has the discernment to say, actually, this is helpful or this is unhelpful. Who, who to invite in and who not to invite in. And I think we, we apply protective uh, sati in many, many different ways in our own practice. You know, when we see a random narrative or thought arising, you know, that discerning quality that actually can actually say, you know, this is not conducive to my well being or to the well being of others. You know, this is not helpful. This is not something to entertain, and that very fact of, like, coming back to the body or coming back to mindfulness of breathing is an expression of protective awareness. I mean, uh, there's also the dimension of sati, which is about investigative awareness. You know, uh, probing, probing, uh, the, the metaphor that's used is uh, the surgeon probing the wound. You know, we don't just jump in and fix things kind of ascertain what's going on, how does it cause, how is it caused, you know, what's the prognosis, you know, and what's the path to healing. And the last of the Domains of society of course, is about reframing cognition. And, you know, meta is the most classical application of that, you know, that someone who we might uh, determine is an enemy or unwelcome with meta practice. Actually, we reframe that cognition. You know, we learn to see the human story, we learn to see beneath. So, you know, my own answer, <laughs> that's a very long answer, is, is that um, I, I think in every dimension of, of developing sati, no matter what setting it is in, is an ongoing journey of learning. And I, I think probably everyone needs to be my, careful of not minimize, minimalizing uh, what sati is into some sort of you know detached observation of something. You know, there's much more to sati than just a kind of detached observation of something. We also have to remember that mindfulness is used in very, very different contexts. You know, the cultivation of mindfulness in this context, um, you know, has a very specific sense of direction. You know, when you look at the satipatthana, you know that you know this is a this is a direct path for the liber- for liberating the heart. You know, that is the goal. That is the aspiration um in other contexts where you know the application of mindfulness can just be so helpful in rel- relieving suffering that the the clarification of that particular goal may not be kind of brought into focus at all you know it has a very much more contextualized application so i don't think these are in you know are in any ways oppositional to each other you know um you know, and the, the skillfulness of, of both practicing and teaching mindfulness anywhere depends upon understanding it, and understanding that it can never be a standalone, uh, an end in itself. You know, it's never an end in itself. Mindfulness is always a doorway. It's always a doorway for understanding. Um, you know, whether that, how that is communicated really relies a lot upon the expertise of both the practitioner and the teacher, Rupert, yeah? Christina, I'd
1: like to ask, honestly, I would like to ask how you've come to love yourself in this life and what that means for
0: you. To love myself? In this life? Do I love myself? And what does that mean you? It's a very strong word, love yourself. You know, it's a very, very strong word. Uh, you know, and yourself is also a very strong word. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so they're both two very powerful words, big words. Um, love, your, love myself um, There's parts, uh, you know, things that my mind does at times that I don't find particularly helpful. You know, or acceptable. I, d- I don't need to love them. I can make a lot of room for them. You know, I can make a lot of space for them. Um, myself is a very big word. Um you know which self you know the the one that gets up grumpy in the morning or the one that's perfectly benign at lunchtime or the one that's you know tired or the one that's creative or the one that's energized I'm not in a state of argument with what is happening right now thats that's a big relief you know when you're not in a state of argument you're not in a state of blame and shame and judgment. <laughs> You know, it, 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 when you're not in a state of argument, there's a lot of room for both allowing and inquiring and cultivating. You know, so I, 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 it's never, never actually a phrase that would actually occur to me, <laughs> quite honestly, to love myself. You know, it's just quite, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for whatever is happening right now and I don't have to be in a state of argument with it. Then you, you, you really relieve yourself of so much else. You know, in terms of, of narrative and, and judgment and, and shame and blame. And you do actually, more than relieving yourself of a lot else, you know, I think you allow room for a lot more to actually develop and be cultivated creatively. And I would say I'm in a dialogue with myself of the moment <laughs> rather than <laughs> loving myself. He's, I love daydreaming. Is that incompatible with mindfulness? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a short answer. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, many, I'm sure you're not alone, and thank you for having the courage to say that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure many people might secretly love daydreaming and actually feel a bit embarrassed to actually bring it forward, you know. But I think daydreaming, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, we, use this, we have to be careful how we use words, you know, because I think that daydreaming is often producing a, a contrived reality of the moment, you know, the, the, the nice reverie, you know, the nice story. It's quite different than creative imagining, um, you know, uh, uh, that kind of creativity. I think the, the kind of contrived pleasant, you know, because when we talk about Dave, I mean, it's generally pleasant, isn't it? The sort of contrived fabrication of an alternative reality is usually sending us a little bit of message of saying, this one is not quite good enough. You know, so I, I, I have the capacity to produce a substitute. So I it is actually a kind of craving. I often think daydreaming is a kind of craving, the craving to have a certain kind of experience pleasant, which allows me to be a certain kind of person. And actually they, they are they do not yeah mindfulness and daydreaming not quite in the same bed. yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a it's quite a useful habit to actually begin to question, you know, not to try and annihilate, but to look at the moments when the attraction to daydreaming is there, and we probably find that in our moments of greatest contentment and greatest well-being and greatest sense of sufficiency, the attraction to daydream is probably not present. Mm-hmm. So it's quite good to actually just check that out. When does that impulse or that inclination arise? You know And then rather going into the daydream, you know, if it's arising from a moment of discontent or a moment of boredom, you know, or a moment of, of flatness or feeling something's missing, mindfulness would actually turn towards that, you know, that, that underlying climate rather than the habit of moving away from it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably not the only person who's um, finding Thoughts of all of the indescribable treats that are going to be in store um, once the retreat comes to an end is quite, um, has has an appeal at this stage of the retreat. Um, And that's clearly a sort of an attraction to
0: the there and then rather than the here and now. Yeah. Do you have any
1: suggestions as to particularly skillful ways of dealing with that particular sort
0: of thought? How, How to skillfully deal with the thought which is kind of leaning forward into the goodies awaiting when the retreat ends. I mean, it's a very similar theme, actually, to to what has been asked previously, you know, because whereas daydream is manufacturing a reality, that sort of leaning forward into the better, uh, the more exciting, the more gratifying, the more pleasing, you know, the more delightful moments... Is, is, I think, actually probably rooted in that same impulse of something better than just now, you know, something better than just here. And, you know, I, I often, uh, many, it seems, in my observation, that, uh, you know, that so again, so easily arises in moments when there there feels to be something lacking, but I think it also easily arises in moments of impending transitions. You know, that there's that leaning forward into how it will be, how it will be. Even though probably a million times in our life we may have done that and found that how it will be is not quite as how we imagined it will be. You know, not quite as juicy, not quite as exciting, not quite as gratifying. In fact, we look back and wonder why we spent so much time leaning forward into that. You know, when life keeps teaching us about like, uh, "Ah, I didn't quite... Fit the bill, you know, that didn't quite fit the bill. Again, I think it is such a, I I do think it's a radical reorientation of mind contentment. You know, I think contentment is a radical reorientation of our minds, you know, to be content. To abide in contentment—not not bovine contentment, you know—that we look at munching our way through a field of grass, you know—but to actually abide in contentment, that this is enough. This is enough, you know, that what in this moment is lacking. Because I think the habit pattern of that leaning forward into the better can be so powerful. And it, it is actually sending some message that's saying it's not enough. You know, it's not enough just now. In terms of skillfully responding to it, well, you know, one way you could respond to it is, of course, you know, with concentration, you can just laser beam out those thoughts. I don't think that is the most skillful way. I, I think, think some inquiry, some investigation is actually far more skillful You know, what is the imagined, you know, is it even a reward system? You know, I've done this, you know, then I get rewarded by having this afterwards, you know. Or what in this moment is lacking? But I think it merits more investigation than just trying to quell the thoughts. I mean, you know, it's such a sort of complex, I mean, complex, not difficult, but complex territory You know, I think the the Buddha's teaching on happiness is so profound. You know, when he speaks about this as being a path of happiness leading to the highest happiness, and the highest happiness is peace. And then the Buddha's teaching on, on happiness is actually really so radical because he's always, you know, he speaks about worldly happiness and he speaks about unworldly happiness. You know, there's no denial that there's much that is lovely in life, that is, you know, comes through the sense doors. And it is all anicca, dukkha, anatta. And then he he speaks about unworldly happiness, which is not, of course, a dissociated happiness, but it is that inwardly generated happiness. And I think to actually get a taste of that in practice, to, to get a taste of inwardly generated joy, inward gener- inwardly generated peace and happiness, I think so radically changes our relationship to the world of conditions. You know, that, that we don't anymore just look at life and say, make me happy. You know, because we know, even though there's much happiness that can be gained, that actually nothing... In terms of worldly happiness, can ever even really compare to the richness of inwardly generated happiness, which is why actually the Buddha really suggested to people they should sit down, you know, and stop and cultivate inwardly and look inwardly and, um, you know, see what is possible, the potentiality of their own hearts and minds for that really unshakable, unshakable sense of well being. So I think it is, you know, it is a, it is a often a kind of multi layered territory, isn't it? Yes, there's the habit to to lean forward into the better moment, into into rewards or or, or um, delighting, being delighted. Uh, you know, that's not necessarily some great catastrophe, but it, it's more like what is it saying to us about our understanding of of happiness and joy and peace and contentment? and where it actually lies, you know. And I, I, th- I feel like we, we live in a world, you know, I mean, certainly where, you know, depression is so epidemic in our world, across cultures. I think we live in a, in, a, in a time of disappointment. I think we live in a time of disappointment collectively. And I think that time of disappointment collectively is often so much a magnification of individual disappointment you know, the the promises that, you know, I will get this, I'll leave a retreat and I'll go and have my banana split, you know, and it's going to make me really, really delighted for a moment, you know, for a moment. And then, oh, now that deflation once more, you know. And I think living in a time of disappointment, you know, I, I do think, I do actually feel many people are, uh, are truly questioning that whole impulse to, to look at life and say, make me happy. You know, and, and I think everything that we do here is really part of that momentum to question the nature of happiness, the source of happiness, the origin of happiness, the, the home of, of happiness and well-being that is not so tied to the world of conditions. No easy answer. Just don't shoot down those thoughts because, you know, that's not the most helpful way, I think, of of understanding those inclinations. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit, ask you about practice because sometimes, I, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Is sitting for investigation. Sometimes it's just peaceful, and sometimes it's just sitting there. And my question is how much should one, you know, coming from such a striving background myself, how much should one push oneself, or how much do you allow? So this is here, right now. Okay. So, did everybody hear the question? So it's about the changing climate of experience in practicing. That sometimes you have a sitting that's very one-pointed and collected. Another time you have a sitting that feels very spacious. Another time you're just showing up, you know. And how much really, you know, given the background that many people have in terms of striving and, and forcing, how much should one just kind of go with that rhythm And how much within that changing rhythm of a single day should one kind of stay steady with a particular intention or a particular development? Does that kind of sum up your question? (coughs) We talk about two different layers of this because one layer is actually what I would call almost meditative uh, craftsman craftspersonship, you know, the craft of the practice. And the other part of this is really the art of the practice. Okay? Now, these have to be interrelated. Now, when I would talk about the craft of the practices, you know, when I survey, say, you know, the array of meditative styles, the array of meditative techniques, they're not all the same. You know, they actually have certain aspirations and certain possibilities held within them. You know, if you look at the difference, for example, between a samatha practice and an insight practice, you know, the intention is quite different, even though the boundaries are not that huge, but the intentions are quite different. And, you know, in the intentions in a samatha practice, um, you know, it's not so much about being inclusive. It's about being able to sustain an object in attention, you know, and that has certain reaps certain benefits, you know, in terms of inner collectedness, in terms of inwardly tasting inwardly generated joy and happiness, in terms of cultivating a mind that is really a friend. That is really, really a friend, you know, that is not subject to obsession, not subject to papancha, you know, not subject to rumination, not subject to being lost. So I have a huge respect for, you know, holding true to that intention. Whereas with an insight practice, of course, the intention is far more inclusive. You know, you again may have an anchoring object. But there's much that's going on, you know, different things become predominant, you're very responsive to that, you're very inclusive. It's really a sense of listening and including and learning from the spectrum of experience. So the intentions are quite different. Then you have practices such as the Brahma know, which are really specific practices of cultivation, cultivating our capacity for kindness, for compassion, for joy, for equanimity. And again, these practices have a very singular intention. Now, what is the best way to approach this landscape? You know, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this in one sitting? Should I do something else in another sitting? I think you actually need to determine what is most beneficial for you given a particular chunk of time, you know. Given a particular chunk of time. Now, that chunk of time might be a month of practice or two months of practice. It might be a week of practice. It might be a single sitting or a single walking. But I think there's a huge value in setting an intention in the beginning of that chunk of time and staying with it. Staying with it. So you're not in the mind, you know, that says, Oh, I'm, I've really dedicated this time to a much more collected, somewhat to style. Oh, no, it's not really working. I'll do some of this, or I'll do some of that. So, you know, we, we I think we sometimes forget the element of how much meditative development is actually a training in developing and inclining the mind in particular ways now these styles are not incompatible clearly you know you may decide to take a month or a week and just dedicate to one of the brahmaviharas or dedicate to samatha or dedicate it to to insight practice but that 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 can be a particular dedication but these these practice styles or these threads always have to be interwoven. You know, I mean, insight practice without samatha is not choiceless. Awareness usually is choiceless spaciness. You know, um, you know samatha practice without metta is often a kind of forcing and, and heavy-handedness. You know, uh, samatha practice without that capacity to listen is often not learning from what unfolds, mostly often outside of sittings, in terms of insights. So, these practices, in many ways, in terms of qualities, need to be really interwoven. In terms of specific application of styles, it's better to be quite clear in your intention over a dedicated chunk of time. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. No? Um So in the
1: four noble truths, there is the, the third and the fourth noble truth uh, separated as nirvana and the path to nirvana. Yeah. And there's also can be a, a, a sense that the, the kind of qualities which are very uh, fruitful for practice can be encouraged something like generosity, can be practiced away from meditation and then in meditation it supports something and that can increase the feeling for generosity and and that seems to hold true for many um, positive qualities and there's a a saying the path is the goal Yeah. and I wonder if you could just say something around that.
0: Around the path is the goal.
1: How that kind of ties to
0: Please say a little bit
1: more. So, so there's kind of a sense of, of the path and the goal being mutually dependent on each other. Yes. But also a sense that the, the way that we practice engenders um, the, the, the qualities of which we are aspiring to. Yes. So kind of minor goals in a day might be, you know, I want to let go more today, I want to be more generous today. And then the path becomes that that minor goal in, in acting in that way. Yeah. And I just wonder if that kind of holds true and maybe the distinction between the third and the fourth truth become something more pliable.
0: I mean, I think it's very important to to ask that question, you know, because again, you know, the third noble, third ennobling truth is very hardly even mentioned, and I think it's out of for most people a sense of impossibility, you know, and and I think part of that is due to the way that the very word nibbana, in many people's minds, has become so. Um, inflated and made to be inaccessible, you know, and some sort of epiphany moment, you know, whereas, of course, the Buddha always spoke about Nibbana as an understanding, rather than as a state, you know, and spoke about this radical reorientation of consciousness, where, you know, the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion have cooled, they've gone out, now we have to remember that in cooling or the extinguishing of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, this does not leave a vacuum behind. You know, it's not like nibbana is some sort of like desolate space. You know, or the fruition of understanding is not a desolate space. In fact, the fruition of understanding, the fruition of blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, of course, is a fruition. And the unshakable fruition of all of the wholesome qualities in terms of ethics, in terms of generosity, um, in terms of the Brahma Viharas, in terms of many of the Paramis. You know, the landscape of Nibbana is well, you know, it's a really good question to ask. You know, what is the landscape of awakening? What is the land? You know, it's, it's not a vacuum, it, it's not an absence, but it's actually the blowing out of those fires that allows the fruition of all of the wholesome, liberating qualities, but it is the cultivation of the wholesome, liberating qualities that blows out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know? And it's not just about uh, some particular turning point of insight. You know? it, 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 it's, it's nothing that, that, that specific. It is actually the cultivation of all the wholesome qualities that does that extinguishing and that blowing out you know, so I think it, it's really important, you know, do, when I think of the path, you know, I think of this jigsaw puzzle, you know, the Four Ennobling Truths is one piece, you know, over here we have the paramis, over here we have the spiritual powers, you know, over here we have the faculties, and this is all pieces of one jigsaw, With and the, and the completed picture is obviously the goal, we might say, you know, because that's the end of these fragmented pieces, it doesn't actually know what's going on. You know. So to have the cultivation of any uh, of the liberating qualities of heart and mind as, as, as a goal, as an intention, as, as a particular cultivation, is always in the service of the third ennobling truth. Because the, you, know, every of the wholesome, liberating qualities that are really spoken about in that jigsaw puzzle all have that aspiration. To actually bring about the end of the distress and the suffering that is born of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's it's absolutely it, imagine how, how our life would be, you know, if we, if we got up in the morning and say, well, today is really dedicated to the cultivation of generosity, you know, and let that be the, the guide of all of our thoughts and acts and words, you know. Or, today my intention is is you know really to be guided by um, uh, patience. Or, or equanimity, and have that be the guide of all our thoughts, words, and acts. You know, this would be quite a different day than just stumbling out my door and hoping all goes well with my fingers crossed. You know, this actually has a, a sense of direction, but it's very important to understand, that I think, that this creative tension that exists between the, the impulses of greed, hatred, and delusion and the cultivation. Of those wholesome and liberating qualities, and it really depends, you know, where where we're going to orient our own minds, you know, where we and you know, we can be pretty sure the orientation in greed, hatred, and delusion is pretty compulsive, pretty unconscious, and pretty habitual, you know. Whereas the orientation in any of those healing, liberating qualities is always intentional; it is always conscious. Hmm? It, it is always mindful, you know, and, and it's that, that play in our lives of, of where do we orient ourselves? You know, where do, where do we actually hang our hats? Yeah, does that answer? Okay, I think we can end there. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.